Check, check. All right. Hey, this is working. It's working when you plug it in. It does. It helps a ton when you plug it in. Uh, hi, I'm George Techman Chubb with Steve the Big Cat Anderson, and we're back for Easton Podcast number 30-something. Season 2, Episode 3. Okay, Season 2, Episode 3. Hey, uh, we've got World Field Championships on the horizon here, and uh, yesterday, as we record this, Steve posted up on Facebook that we'd be talking about that subject, and some many of you actually have... Uh, sent us in some great questions on our Easton Target Archery Facebook, as well as podcast at EastonTP.com. So we're going to tackle a bunch of that. But first, we're going to just generally talk about the event in Ireland, the yeah. World Field Championship. Let's do it. Your second one. My second one. Yeah, I shot Zagreb uh, 2014. I like World Field. I, you know, um, I shot the World Field in 2004, also in Croatia but not in Zagreb. Uh, although I have some great memories of going to Zagreb with some friends and getting awesome pizza. The best. It was amazing and <laughs> not very expensive. The nice thing about that part of uh, Croatia, especially toward the coast, is it's just like northern Italy, but about half the price. Seriously. Yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah that sounds about right. I would accurate. absolutely go there for a vacation. Yep, I would as well. Especially I, on a motorbike. Yeah, I uh, I didn't venture out to the coastal region, but I think from Zagreb, it's only what an hour. Yeah, at most. Yeah, it's it's just like the Ligurian coast in in Italy. Yeah, I mean, you can take a hydroplane across the uh, Adriatic to get to Venice in about seventy minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the, the architecture. Say you pick Ravine, Croatia, which is spelled R A V I N G E, but it's pronounced Ravine. It's probably pronounced something else if you're Croatian, but that's how I was taught to pronounce it. It's just like Venice without the tourist pricing. And another area over there was the uh, basis of uh, filming for a, a major portion of Game of Thrones. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. I've never watched Game of Thrones. As you know, I, I don't watch TV. but I don't follow it. But, but I know some people yeah. who do, and I'm sure that there's some there's some architecture there that would be perfect for this something set like that yeah uh, that's my understanding is uh yeah maybe it's the same city you're talking about it could be i don't know i, I kind of miss croatia because we used to have a world cup there every year went there for several years in a row it'd be nice if one of them went back there awesome people awesome people great volunteers for the events i yeah let's do it let's move i can think of one in particular i would like to move back there Mm-hmm. Yep. so anyway but back to the subject of field archery which is uh you know, uh, coming up, World Field coming up uh, a couple of weeks from now as we record this. So um, let's talk about prepping for World Field. What are you doing right now? What are you doing to get ready? Um, well, I've almost started. And, yeah, I'm kind of behind the eight ball. I haven't been shooting a ton. I'm at the end of the year, and I'm, I'm a little, you know, feeling kind of burnt. But um, I started shooting my field bow at the last tournament in uh dublin ohio so is that the yellow bow yeah taking it from dublin to dublin (laughs) there you go but uh there's a bit of a difference in the in the accent there lad (laughs) slightly yeah they don't say use guys and stuff yeah exactly in in dublin ireland and if you ask them for a pop they won't know what the heck you're talking about whereas in 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 ohio they will (laughs) yes (laughs) so uh this week i will probably start hammering out just was a bunch of shooting, um, get a good sight tape set up going. And for me, I like to, 
I, I have in the past, I've ran off the site scale, the marks cards, and that's always worked well. Um, if I get in trouble where something's off, I can do the math and make that work. But I think I'm going to go to strictly a site tape at, at world field. You can only have one or the other, right? You only get, uh, one reference or something like that. Yeah, you can too. have a tape yeah. on your site or you can have a card with your with your numbers, but you can't have both. Correct. So And the card with your numbers can only have ranges and, and a corresponding number. Can't have any coded information or any other. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing else allowed. All so right. And by the way, for those of you who we are losing cuz we know we are losing a lot of you with this level of discussion <laughs> regarding this whole thing, we are going to go into a full detailed explanation of all this stuff yeah exactly what field archery is yeah what it is and and what we're talking about with terms of of site numbers and why he's talking about you know a cut card all that sort of thing we're going to talk about cuts we're going to talk about ranging we're going to talk about unmarked versus marked so this is going to be a field archery focused discussion here just for background i shot um the World Games in 2005. I shot the World Field in 2004, and my start in the sport was actually in field archery. And so uh, I was a field archer before I was a target archer. And so I, I'd like to think I've got some reasonable, some reasonable experience with that. Well, Steve, you've been to a World Championships for the U.S. team, so yes. And Steve uh, has also shot in the World Championships with Compound. I shot Recurve. So I think between the two of us, we can tackle most stuff regarding this thing with some degree of accuracy. And if we don't know, we'll just say it confidently enough that you'll believe We'll us. make it up. Yeah. No. All right. So, in fact, this is a good opportunity to segue yeah. to our questions that we got. Um, yesterday, Steve posted up on Facebook um, that we were going to be doing this subject. And so, uh, we've got a bunch of great questions here. And it starts with Sterling Schroeder, who wants to know, can we do a brief description of what field archery is and how it differs from other forms of archery? It may sound like a simple question, but I'm sure there are other new archers whose only exposure to the sport is the Olympics or bow hunting. And you're absolutely right, Sterling. So great question to start things off with. Yeah. So a quick rundown. Between compound and recurve, they shoot the same distances. Bare bow shoots different distances. Let's pull this back even yeah. further. Let's pull this back even further. What is field archery? Field archery is shooting on uneven ground at targets at various distances from right. 10 to 60 meters. On four different size target on faces. On four different size target faces. And for the first day or sometimes two days, depending on the event, you do not know the distance to the target faces. And on the last two days or last day of the event, you shoot different positions at different targets where you do know the distances and the principle the abiding principle of field archery is uneven terrain uneven footing unsteady footing sometimes having to contort yourself into position to shoot because you're not just standing on flat ground and shooting at a target that's level you may have to shoot at a target that's practically so steep below your feet that you're aiming between your feet you could drop an arrow and hit a target sometimes you have to actually rope in for safety Sometimes you have to contort to shoot a target that's practically overhead. Particularly in European courses, they can get very gnarly. The footing can be very uneven. Uh, there can be risk in some field tournaments because the ground can be so difficult to negotiate. You've got to be in good shape, generally. Yeah, you could take a tumble. You could. And um, field archery exposes you to the elements 100%. 
I've almost been hit by lightning a couple of times. Um, no joke. And you find yourself hanging it out there with your bow. And it's, it's <laughs> awesome because you learn so much about yourself, so much about your form, that it immediately makes you more confident when it's time to go out there and shoot target archery where you know the distance is. You're not, you're not about to fall down a cliff. You know? Right. I mean, there's a ton that you can learn from field archery. So field archery, in my opinion, field archery is the most awesome form of our sport. I would agree. I mean, it's, uh, or it's been the called the, the thinking man's game. Has. And or it, woman's. It, uh, yeah. And it is. And being all-encompassing. And, and what do we mean by that? Why, why do you have to be a thinking person to be able to shoot field archery? Well, you can't take for granted anything. You can't take for granted the fact that the target might not be square to you. You can't take for granted the fact that the angle you're shooting at, you're going to be able to pick the right sight mark right. to hit that target at that distance, even if you guessed distance correctly. Mm-hmm. And then let's take this up a step now that we've generally described what field archery is. Field archery generally consists of unmarked and marked. The unmarked generally always is first, and then the marked round is after. Generally, you're talking 48 targets marked, 48 targets unmarked in many major competitions. Yeah, we do 24 now. 24 and 24 at the World Field Championship. Yep. Back in my day, we used to shoot a lot more arrows, though. <laughs> um, so you're talking about a situation where you're shooting three arrows, your high score for the X ring in the target is a six, you get an extra point, basically. Yep. Used to be five, four, three, two, one. Now it is six, five, four, three, two, one. Yep. Since the 2010 Worlds, they've yeah. done the and they And they actually implemented it before that, I think, for some events as a sort of test. Anyways, it, the main effect that has had, one aspect of field archery is because no two field courses are the same. You really, records are kind of meaningless. But the numbers have changed radically. So, you know, what used to be a really good score, you know, say a 350-something, now would be a 380-something, or I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, for a recurve, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Those are the numbers. Recurve is my reference point, so. Yep, and basically that's – so you're shooting at a a black target face with a yellow center, and – Back before the X-ring scoring, it was all, you know, hit the yellow and you get a five. X-ring was just style points. So you would see on the compound side a number of clean scores on occasion. You, you, you might not get multiples, but, you know, you'd get a Dave or someone like that would, would shoot clean. and Yeah, it's basically keeping them all in the yellow. Yeah, and now I think you'd get a ton of guys shooting clean scores. So with the X-ring scoring, it, it really helps, but... Yeah, back then perfect was 360. Now you add in, you know, 72 bonus points on top of that. So 432 is possible. Um, I think a good score now is in the teens, you know, 413 plus. On compound. Yeah, on the unmarked, you generally see higher score on the unmarked because courses are generally a bit shorter. Now let's let's consider the targets. Yeah. You got got four targets. We've got a 20 centimeter uh, target. Mm Mm-hmm. A 40-centimeter target, yep. a 60-centimeter target, and an 80-centimeter target. Yep. There is overlap between where those targets can be located based on the distance to the target. Correct. Compounds and recurves shoot from the same 
shooting positions. Right. Bare bow shoots at closer shooting positions. Yep. So on the 20, compounded recurve on the unmarked day, all we know is it's going to be between 10 and 15 meters. Right. On the marked day, 10 and 20 meters. But they're, let's just cover more unmarked for now. Yeah, let's stick with unmarked so that we yeah. get people through the first day. And let's consider the size of the yellow dot on that 20-centimeter face, about the size of a U.S. nickel. Yeah, it's it's basically a Vegas 10 ring. So it's not, you know, it's not enormous and you have the X-ring to contend with on top of that about the about a dime size X-ring. Yep. So, you know. Yeah, so maybe a quarter would be a better. 10 know, to 15 level. meters and that that sounds easy and yeah, it is until they throw in a 40 degree angle. And footing that, you know, yeah. has you hoping not to slip. You might have to actually take a knee to be able yeah. to be stable. So, it can get difficult and usually those shorter distance targets are the ones where they can really do a harsh angle because they have the terrain to do so. It's exactly. hard to do a, you know, you need a heck of a cliff to do a 40 degree target at anything beyond 20 yards. And they do do it. They, I mean, yeah. It when they can, they do. Yeah. But when they, I mean, it's tough in a place like Yankton, let's say. Yeah. But you go to the Alps, you go to uh, Akina, Japan, you go to some of these places and it's like, whoa. Yeah. Like the, the Euro pro series I shot this year, you know, it's, I mean, my first target, I think, was like a 45 degrees. It was only 25 yards, but that's pretty But you had to like. shoot it for like 12. Yeah, I think I shot it in the neighborhood of 21. I can't I'd have to do yeah. the math. But here's the question. What are we talking about there? Well, here's the deal, folks. You are looking at a trigonometry issue when you've got a big angle to the target. Your actual distance to the target is shorter than you might expect as far as the arrow flight is concerned. So there's always what we call a cut. Whether you're shooting uphill or downhill, you got to cut distance to hit the target. Yeah, and people who are first getting into archery often think, well, if you're shooting uphill, you need to add distance because you're working against gravity. Like, no. No. It's, this is purely it's, geometry. Yeah, it's just a, you know, you're talking a triangle and a hypotenuse, and you're you're now removing that longest leg, and you're shooting the, the second. Yep. And... Yeah, so you know, I think uh, oh, it's uh, I have to get my charts out. I review all this before I go and shoot a field tournament, and then I forget it. But somewhere so, in the neighborhood of like a twenty, a fourteen degree angle is like a ten percent cut or something. Yeah, and like that's that. how we discuss this generally amongst ourselves after the event. Is I took a ten percent cut on that, or I took a five percent cut on that. Yeah, you know, and and you get you practice enough, you get to a point where you can compute this in your head without having to refer to a chart. Because guess what, you're not allowed to have a chart. Nope. Nor are you allowed any electronics. So a goinometer, an inclinometer, those things are not allowed. No, you're just using your. I mean, you see people use their their arms. I guess you you know. Yeah, and some people, you know, one of the other challenges with field archery is sometimes the background that you're shooting against isn't level. Right. You're shooting against a side hill, so you'll see people take an arrow and hang it out and try to determine what is level, what is vertical. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of allowed. Yeah, and you've got to pick you know horizontal line and you know I I do it. I try to imagine a horizon yeah. line and then and you then have then a bubble there. there. Yeah, for me, yeah, side hill. Compound hills, has a bubble. Yeah, side hill is a, a level. Not an issue, but. Right. It is for a recurve, I can yeah, tell you for sure. Yeah, when I'm working the, the cut angle, though. Yeah. What recurve shooters tend to do on a side hill, that is where you see a, 
basically you're shooting against a sloped horizon, you have a tendency to cant your bow into or out, uh, excuse me, out of the, the, down the angle hill. downhill. Yep. So you've got to fight that tendency or otherwise you're going to throw your arrow left or right, depending on which way you're canting. Yeah. One thing I do to counter that is I can't into the hill, then draw the bow. Mm-hmm. So that usually levels me up by the time I get to full draw. And similarly, another technique that recurve shooters use, which relates to another question coming up, is they will pre-draw and then adjust the angle as needed. Now that is something that the judges are starting to crack down on depending on where it could send the arrow, right? So imagine a situation where you've got to shoot downhill, a radical downhill shot, Mm -hmm. and let's say it's overlooking a, a cliff or overlooking a, uh, a valley off in the distance. Right. If you want to draw level and then come down on the target and a judge sees you do that, it's the same as a sky draw. Yeah, it's essentially a sky draw. Right? But recurve shooters will try to do that if they can. Because if you try to tilt and then draw, you're really, going to come up an inch yeah. short on your clicker. It screws with the alignment there. Exactly. So a lot of shooters try to draw and then move keep the T up on top. And that relates to a um, good question we got here from, let's see here, I got to find that. It is, well, I saw it here. It was a question about uh, whether, oh, here it is. Somebody wanted to know uh, that they heard, rather, that some shooters tend to shorten up their setups. Yeah. Can you speak to that on compound side? Um, I think that's a popular thing for people to say and talk about, and maybe they even do it, but, um, I don't, you know, your draw length is your draw length. Exactly. It's, I think it's a terrible idea. Yeah. It doesn't change. It was Robert Rankin. Here it is. He heard on an archery pro series video where they said a lot of field shooters run a touch shorter draw length for the angles on the shots and they adjust the bow fit. Is this something you've experienced before? And do you set up your bows this way for field shoots? Absolutely not. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I've heard it, but no, I wouldn't do that. I mean, it's a matter of you have to work the execution when uh, the, the uphill shots are the hardest, right? Trying to execute on those, and you just have to do it. You can't you can't shortcut it by shortening the draw length. No, you know, that that doesn't do you any good. You're, really, you're totally cheating yourself. Yeah. And if your setup is, let's be honest, when we get to the final, you're probably going to have some flat shots you might have one at an angle i don't know it it just depends but if you're not set up to where you can stand on flat ground and absolutely pound it's not going to do you any better on the hills because you have to set up for the average shot and the average shot's not going to be that one or two that are really steep you know it's like the guy who goes to reading and practices for 101 yards great you can hit that twice but you know if you miss a bunch of 40 50 yarders you're going to lose just like when we're talking about world archery field tournaments, you can lose a lot of points on the short on the shortest targets. Yeah, I would say the majority of my drop points come on bunnies. Yeah, bunnies are how we refer to the twenty the centimeter. Twenty centimeter, yeah. And those are shot, by the way, uh, individually. There's a, a strip of three targets yeah, spaced vertically. Vertical three. And by the way, you got to shoot the correct strip. In a, yep. If you're in a group of four, and your shooter A or shooter B if you're shooter A, you got to shoot the far left strip. 
Yeah, shooter B shoots the third from the left. Third from the left. If you're shooter C, yeah. you're shooting the second from the left. And if you're shooter D, you're shooting the far right. And you'd be amazed how many top-level people screw that up. Yeah, my first ever field tournament, I I watched Dave shoot the wrong target. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I've seen two-time world champions who shall not be named because they're good friends. And if they hear the podcast, they'll be mad that I brought this up. <laughs> They've shot the wrong target and cost a gold medal because of uh, – you know, doing that in a final, mm-hmm. which has got to be awful, just yeah. awful. So, so that's yeah. We kind of bounced around there, but the twenty is is referred to as the bunny. And yeah, it's, it's the small vertical strip. The, okay, the, so the, the forty. The next one is the forty, and the yeah. forty is shot at longer distances. But again, um, there's some overlap between the forty and the twenty, and the forty and the sixty from the distances that it can be located at. Um, Actually, one comes butts up right up against the other. Yeah, they don't overlap. Right, right. Yeah, it's the sixty and eighty that overlap. Yeah, forty goes from fifteen meters to twenty-five meters on the unmarked. Right. Day. Sixty goes from oh, what does it go? Twenty-five to f- I don't even remember now. Twenty-five to forty. Twenty-five to thirty-five. Yeah, you can look it up on the. Uh, World it goes archery. twenty-five to thirty-five, and the eighty goes thirty to fifty or fifty-five. Yeah, I don't. We'll have to look. Yeah, it, it, this is how often I shoot field. Yeah, well, you know? the point is this. Why are we driving at all that? Because you got to know, obviously, you got to know how far the target is, and it's unmarked. How do you cope with that? Do you just look and go, hmm, I think that's X amount far away? No. Almost all field shooters, good ones, have various methods, not just one method, but at least two methods to determine the distance to the target. And by the way, if anybody tells you that they're not using a ranging method, they are probably lying to you if they have any accomplishment in the, in the, in the genre. So uh, here's the quick and dirty way to describe what we're talking about. If you've got, let's say you've got a one centimeter diameter aiming ring, and that happens to be one meter away from your retina at full draw, that has a one-to-one relationship with what's happening at the target from the standpoint of how many rings you subtend with that ring on the target, okay? So that's a very complicated way to explain that it's all based on Tails <laughs> theorem, where basically you've got a one-to-one-hundred ratio. Mm-hmm. Here's what it boils down to. No matter what size aperture you have, okay, you can figure out how to use that thing as a ranging device by taking a 10-centimeter strip of tape, sticking it on a target exactly 10 meters away from your aperture, pulling up on that thing and then moving your sight in and out until your ring completely encloses the tape end-to-end. Now you have that direct relationship without having to measure the distance to your eye. Yep, so... So now you've got a ranging device. Yeah. So let's say that you're at 10 meters and you see half of the 20, right? Right. This is, comp- I'm trying to I'll not put it another process way. because it's completely all right, so different me, from what I do. All right. So let me put this another way. Let me put this another way. You take that, you take that ring that you've now set up the way I just described. And if you have the entire 20 centimeter target in your ring you are 20 meters 
from that target. Give or take nothing. So you're dead on. The whole target. If you saw, I mean, I'm just saying, if Mm -hmm. you had the entire 40 in your ring, you'd be 40 meters from that target. Okay, so yours is the same as what what mine is, but I utilize the. uh, And what we do is, of course, you count the number of rings that you see to a certain point, reference point inside that ring, and that effectively can within half a half a meter you know if you're steady enough you can tell yeah how far you are so i my method utilizes the dot yeah because you got a lens yeah. with a dot on it we yeah. don't right we just have a ring or, so, or a ring with a pin yeah if i'm whatever i'll just tell it it's, yeah might as well everybody yeah. knows it everybody you can read. knows Peter bolstad one of the world archery judges freaking wrote the manual on how to cheat in field archery yeah. so and <laughs> and uh I do fine in the marked round anyway, so I, I feel like I'll be competitive regardless. But, yeah, I mean, if I have the edge of my scope looking at full draw, the edge of my scope at 20 meters is lined up with the edge of the target, my dot should be in the middle. So from Same there, idea. Yeah, every ring is, is uh, 10% the value of the face size. Right. So every ring is four centimeters or four so, meters. you know, the only thing is you've got to know those relationships in your head. You can't keep notes of that stuff. You know – Wilkie explained it very well to me. He said the unknown Kevin round, Wilkie, silver world silver medalist. Uh, yeah, and world games gold and medalist. world games gold yeah. medalist. He said there's two components of the unmarked round. Both of them are just like shooting. One is how steady you can aim the the bow just to range it, and then two is to actually shoot it. So it's no different. I mean, who he who can hold steadiest and hold best is going to have a really easy time ranging once they figure out a system. And beyond that, then you just shoot the arrows, right? So right. it's really no different. By the way, one of the things that uh, goes into this is you better set your sight pretty close to where you think it's going to be before you pull up on it because the judges will call you on it if you pull up and then let down repeatedly. Yeah, I've never – they seem to knock. I mean, as long as you're within the three-minute time limit. Yeah, they care less than they care. used to, but <laughs> – yeah, I agree with that. But you've got to get that first shot off within the time limit if a judge is watching. Yeah, so I think at my first field event, you know, there people have their methods of of uh, determining angles as well. And this is the one where it's supposed to be, you know, it, like everything else in field, it's kind of we look the other way. You do your thing when we look the other way. Just try not to make it obvious. And a very high-profile shooter walked right up to the target, held his bow out, took a measurement with his, you know, with visually and with his hands, and then made an adjustment. I was like, okay, I guess there's no hiding it. There's no need. Yeah, know. well, you know, but we did talk about earlier this being the thinking person's version of the sport. Now you maybe get a feel for how much thinking's involved. There's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the the other, yeah we haven't even touched on. You know targets and how they're laid out and how that affects. How oh you yeah. Range For example, when you're ranging, think of this. That works great if you can see the target flat on to your field of view. But what happens when they take that target and tilt it both away from you and to the left and right? That's, now you have an oblong thing that you're looking yeah. at. Yeah. So I had one in Croatia where I ranged it seven different ways, and I took the average and walked away with three in the X. You know, and everyone else ranged it one way, shot it, and was wrong. That speaks to having more than one ranging method. Yep. So, Other things that make it hard. When you have an air gap between you and the target. When you have water between you and the target. Um, 
because another ranging method is if you can figure out what 10 meters is, yeah, then you can, can just visually add on until you get close. Yeah, people call it flipping the pole. Uh-huh. That's yeah, one way to put it. 10-meter pole. Like flipping. a caber toss. Yeah. Yeah. That's a... Uh, we were watching that the other day, weren't we? We were. We were watching caber toss in a <laughs> staff <laughs> meeting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were we were actually looking at doing aluminum cabers as a new product. No, just kidding. <laughs> just totally, totally kidding. But <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> no, um... But, you know, that's another method, and that's called gapping by some people. You know, they, they, they just they look and they, they visually look at 10-meter increments or 5-meter increments or whatever works for the individual. Yep. Another method is called the owl method, and the owl method involves how much parallax change you get. You hold your bow out, and you move your head, and some people can gauge based on how much the target moves relative to the limb tip. One guy tried to make a living uh, selling CDs for sound judging. That's the other one. That one for com- 3D. I, I can't tell you how many points that saved me. Really? Knowing, I'm, I'm knowing, not a believer at all. Well, but it works, and here's why. <laughs> all right, so moving on to the 60 and 80, because this is going to come back full circle. Yeah, okay? yeah. It, it can work be- if you're trying to determine this is where This is where it can save you points. Okay, this is where trickery starts on the field more than any other place is mm-hmm. the 60 and the 80. We kind of gave short shrift to 40. There's nuances about shooting the 40, which is a quad configuration, but yeah, we don't really need to go can't there. mess it up. No. But the 60 and the 80, boy, you can mess it up. And some field organizers, especially ones in Croatia, love to mess with you uh, on, on those setups, particularly in non championship events. But for sure, even at the world championships, they, they'll. Here's what I'm getting at it's pretty hard to tell the difference visually between a 60 centimeter face and an 80 centimeter face at 40 yards, let's say 40 meters, excuse me. Yeah. As 30, an example, 35, the overlap, right? Yeah. Because they it, overlap. It, it can be. So you literally find yourself looking at that thing and going, Hmm, is that a 60 or is that an 80? Right. Cause the first thing you have to do to determine the range is determine the face. Exactly. Because if you pick wrong, you're going to be off by at least 10 meters. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. And you're in trouble if you're off by 10 meters. You won't hit the target in a lot of cases. Compounds will catch you at a ring probably, but recurves, bye X10. So, you know, you're really literally needing to figure out, all right, what am I looking at here? That's the very first thing you've got to know. And all your decisions after that are based on picking the right target. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a story. I was in uh, Spokane uh, for a uh, field trials event. And um, I was in a group of people, including J-Bars, 15-time national champion, two-time world champion. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't. So I don't think I have 15 years in me. Jay knows his field archery, yeah. all right? And um, Jay's in my shooting group, and he's AB, and I was shooting in CD, and it came up, and uh, AB was up first. Jay shoots. Uh-oh. I know that he didn't range that one right. After a suitable interval of um, <laughs> colorful language. And anybody who knows Jay knows he's capable of very colorful language. Uh, he planted the other two arrows in there. Right. Well, the truth is I actually knew that he'd ranged it wrong based on how long it took. Just hearing it. Yeah. Yeah, you, could, yeah, you can tell. Yeah. You know, so last year I have my own similar story there. Last year at our nationals, uh, it was Jesse and I, and we literally, it's the first target. You know, Jesse is, at this point, I don't think he'd ever been beaten in field. Maybe once. Maybe his very first time. 
but he he'd already won back-to-back world championships you know he's he's by far the king of field archery so absolutely first target we get up and it's uh it's one that we're both kind of questioning they'd done a good job of keeping it in the trees to where you couldn't really gauge it visually and i thought it was close enough that it had to be a 60 so i shoot it at you know i don't even know what and i completely miss jesse's at full draw <laughs> lets down moves his sight you know whatever 10 or 12 meters whatever it needed to be and proceeds to drop an 18 and i hit my next two but you know right there i'm like well i just spotted jesse six points on the tournament you can't you just can't do that um can't make him up yeah but he ended up misfacing two of them the next day or uh later on that day on the second half and you know it he caught the target you know he i think he shot twos on both of them so he didn't lose the full six points but it can easily happen and it happened to me at my first world championships you know you I was very convinced, so I was paying attention on the practice range. They had 60-centimeter targets by, I think it was Bjorn, and 80-centimeter targets by JVD on the practice range. So the logo, if you can see it, isn't the same. Right, yeah. I could visually, I mean, it was easy to tell on the practice range. So I'm thinking they're doing this on purpose. They're going to try to fool me. They had different size uh, 11 bales. You know, that's what one thing they'll do. They'll put an 80 on a on a full-size bale so it covers the entire bale. Or they'll put a 60 on a smaller, smaller bale. bale. Yeah. So, so it looks like an 80 on a big bale. Right. Or they'll... Mix them up. Yeah, they, they can find three-size bales and go crazy on you. So yeah. Suppos- very, Supposedly, they're not supposed to do that anymore, but oh, I still see it. Well, that would have been nice to know. But, yeah. Um, so I get to the first target, and I'm convinced it's... Oh, I was convinced it was 27 meters right on a 35 centimeter face <laughs> and it's down in a it, it crossed a goalie right so like you said they took the ground away from in between us and which that makes, makes it, it hard, hard to do to, the caber toss yeah so <laughs> our new phrase for that i thought well it's 27 or i guess it's 33 or excuse me 36 i don't know you know on an 80 and um i had an extremely fast bow that year and I shot a low four. And I don't think anybody in the group thought anything of it. You know, they didn't realize I had misfaced it. And I just held high four the next two shots, put two X's in. They think they thought I just made a bad shot. That's getting shot. away with murder, by the way. Yeah. I mean, you misfaced it and still caught a four? That is... I was 311. That's O.J. Simpson right there, man. I was 311 feet per second, so... Oh, my. For, for you know, for target bow, that's yeah. screaming. So, the... Uh, the next guy in the group, if I remember right, he got up and did the same thing, but he was not so fortunate or something like Caught that. Caught it too, maybe. Yeah. So it, it it can happen. And, you know, I got there thinking, oh, that's a that's a JVD face, but I'm, I'm pretty certain that's a 60. You know, I think they put it on – they finally switched it on me. They're trying to get me. Then I realized from there on out, every time it was a JVD face, it was an 80. Every time it was a Bjorn face, it was a 60. And I, I thought that was kind of weak. I thought that made yeah. it easy. Yeah, I agree. You know – um, I will say that every time I've ever done a misface, it's because I've second-guessed myself. Yeah, you think too much about it. Yeah, and it might not be every time, but it stands out that way in my memory, right? The same for me. I mean, I feel that way. Every mm-hmm. time I second-guess myself, I, that's generally when I screw up. Usually, I'll walk up there, I'll look at it, I'll go, okay. Then you can glass it, 
and look at the arrow holes versus the rings, and you can maybe get some second confirmation that way. Yeah, if it's the first target of the day, you're kind of stuck. Unless you have a group of people shooting aluminums in front of you or something like that, (laughs) then you've got a problem. Um, And that leads to Malcolm uh, Reese's question. Is there a great difference between your field and target setup, either in stabilizer setup or weights? Or if one setup is good for one, should it be good for the other? Um, I always shot my target bow for field and vice versa, but I changed arrows. Yeah, so I have different stabilization setups because I I run a big 15-inch sidebar on the target setup, and it's kicked out pretty far, and that's great in the wind. It's not good on a hill. So I, I do a 12-inch sidebar with a little more weight on it, and I move it in a little tighter to the bow. And it takes me a little while to get used to shooting that because of the natural cant. Um, but once I'm accustomed to it, that's the way to go. I think if you're if you're trying to have a big offset on the sidebar, you're going to struggle. It's going to turn the bow in your hand real hard anytime you aim up or downhill. You want to have a more neutral stabilizer for field archery. And you know, I see that. It's crossed my mind to uh, to experiment with like a, a V-bar setup, you know, maybe half my weights on one, or, or excuse me, a third of my weights on one, two-thirds on the other, and then swap them on ups and downs, you know, if I if I felt the need. But I never bothered with that. That's I, I tried V-bars for like 10 minutes, and I couldn't do it. For the recurve, um, you know, it's pretty hard to screw around switching setups on a recurve bow. So... I always shot my target setup. The only difference was I'd shoot ACEs. And, more speed. Yeah. And um, I had developed a point back in the 90s, which looks a lot like uh, Pro Point. And, mm-hmm. and I used those points for field archery for, for reasons that escape me now. Because <laughs> they were cool. They were cool. <laughs> and um, with the much shorter distances, uh, continuing with Malcolm's question, with the much shorter distances in field, are, is there any advantage to having arrows with larger fletchings for extra steering or fatter arrows for the line cutting for the bunnies? I will say for some people, yeah, and for really good shooters, no. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. A couple of years ago, I was shooting a field championship in Japan. Um, and there was a guy in my group, and he had aluminum arrows in his quiver, and he had, I think they were, um, yeah, they were X10s. X10s in his quiver. And I'm looking at the guy, and he's got feathers on the aluminum arrows. And I'm thinking, oh, I know what he's going to do. He's going he's gonna to shoot those aluminum arrows at the bunny targets. And sure enough, he did. But the problem was, I think, he didn't have his system down quite right, right? You've got to compromise on your center shot if you're going to make that change. One of them is not going to be right. Mm-hmm. So he had such a wicked kick on the short distances with his aluminums that sometimes it cost him points because it kicked out. Right. Right. If you shot it, it was kicking, it was kicking right. Mm-hmm. So if you caught the right side. It could move the whole shaft. Oh, out. yeah. And no yeah. joke. So, yeah, if you can magically figure out a way to tune this. Now, I used to have a, a pretty good friend when I shot back east. And some of you folks listening to the podcast remember Rod Hoover. And Rod would set up bow with uh, aluminums and feathers for 30 meters in a feet around. He'd shoot. He'd shoot the other distances with ACEs or whatever at the time, you know, East and ACs. But then he'd switch string and plunger and pull out the aluminums for 30 meters. <laughs> and, and dude, listen, the guy was good for a 340-something every time. So right. can't complain with a recurve. So you can't complain about that. Um, I, I personally, for field archery, no way. I, I, can't keep that, I can't keep up with that. What I did do one year, what I did do one year 
I had three arrows in my quiver set up with feathers for the bunnies. Mm-hmm. Now, these were still X-10s, but I had them with uh, two, and a, two and a half inch feathers. And I thought maybe I picked up a few points that way. Hmm. Just same, same arrow, just, just fatter stabilization. They'd cost you points further out, but yeah. as long as you had a good mark for them, and, and inside 10, you know, 10 to 15 meters, it didn't matter. Then, yeah, so maybe fatter fletching, maybe bigger fletching might be yeah. something you could do. For compounders, I see a few guys who will go with a like a max diameter, 23, and you can pencil mark, uh, you know, a bunny mark on your sight tape for those. And uh, Chris White did it at the last World Championships, and he ended up second place. It saved him. I mean, honestly, that saved him uh, a sp- he wouldn't have been in the quarterfinals or maybe it was the semis if he hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. We had a real steep 15 meter target that was just eating people alive. You know, a 16 was a good score on that one. Oh, yeah. And he, he ended up, I think he shot a 17 or maybe even an 18 on that. And, uh, it was a big swing, moved him to where he needed to be. And he got into the semis. Last part of Malcolm's question is considering how wet the world fields were in Wales a few years back, have you packed your waterproofs just in case Ireland isn't known as being a dry country after all? Boy, was it wet in Wales. They they had, um, I mean, they had to shut down half the course because it was just flooded out. The water was up to the water was up to the bridges in the in the town where we were shooting, which is unpronounceable. And <laughs> have you ever seen Welsh names? Yeah. They're unpronounceable. So and the, the bridges have been built in Victorian times. So that gives you some idea. This is one of those one in a hundred year yeah. water events. But hopefully Ireland will be a little better. But yeah, uh, you better pack your waterproofs. I even bought a, a waterproof bucket hat just in case. You bring in your golf clubs too? How can mm. you go to Ireland and not bring your golf clubs? I know. I would like to. But the time, the only time I could play golf would be Saturday or Sunday if I don't make the finals. So if I were going to Ireland, I would be taking a week off afterward just to go, yeah. you know, do stuff. Yeah. Me, personally. I, you know. my mind. I don't know yet on the golf clubs. Okay. Maybe it's a good idea to bring them because then I won't, I'll make the finals and I won't get to use them. That's it. Or there maybe I bring them and if I don't make the finals, I ease the pain by, you know. Oh, laddie, golf there's balls. plenty of ways to ease the pain in Ireland besides <laughs> golf. <laughs> I know you're a good Mormon boy, but Irish whiskey is wonderful stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, not very field archery specific question from Kfir Behar, but I've always wondered why mylar veins are rarely used with compound. They obviously work extremely well for recurve, so why not compound as well? Uh, with a drop-away rest, they work fine. The first FIDA 1400 score was shot by Clint Freeman with spin wings on an ACE. So uh, obviously they can work. Yeah. But I think that at the velocities that modern compounds are throwing out right now um, and with the durability factor and the 50-meter round of whacking arrows consistently, you'd be refletching every other end. Yeah, and I'm not sure they give any advantage, you know, even... Not on a 50-meter round. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they would provide, even perfectly tuned, I don't think they'd provide better flight characteristics or wind drift. Um you know, it's the downsides exceed the upsides. Yeah, there's I I don't see any upside for a compound. Right, I I still think a, a vein would be better in all scenarios. And you know, Sergio and Clint aside, a lot of guys are shooting non dropaways. 
Yeah, very few. I'm, uh, you know, just off the top of my head, I can only very think few of dropaways. A couple. Paul I'm, Tedford shot uh, the big seven sixteen last week with a dropaway. That is a big score. Yeah, very good score in the wind. Well, he's he's a stud. What can you say? <laughs> Um, hopefully not too late with this one, but something I've been pondering with all the high FOC talk these days, Seth Niebaum wants to know, does the length of the insert affect the spine reaction of an arrow, i.e. the standard insert on a gold tip, my apologies, shaft, is approximately uh, an inch long. A little, yeah. A little under an inch long. They also sell a 50-grain aluminum insert that's 2.3 inches long. Obviously, the weight will increase FOC and weaken the dynamic spine, but doesn't the length of the insert reinforce the end of the shaft? And if so, does that affect the spine reaction? Yes, exactly. Yeah, much like uh, yeah. stainless point on an X10 versus a tungsten. Exactly, Seth. Yeah. Uh, you are going to end up with a net zero change, generally, if you're talking 10 or 20 grains with that much difference in the uh, in the insert length because mechanically you're shortening the shortening arrow effectively. The arrow effectively. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, do you think bare bow should be included in, an, in all world archery circuits and not just the World Archery Field Championship? Question from uh, uh, Mr. Juan. And uh, pardon me, I, I, your first name there is a little tough even for me. So <laughs> Yeah, my app's not showing me names. So okay, so, so Mr. Juan is asking, do you think Barebow should be included in all World Archery Circuits, not just World Archery Field Championships? I Whether or not we think it should, it can't. And the reason it can't is because uh, there is not going to be any more World Indoor after this next World Indoor. It's going to go to Indoor World Cup. The capacity limits of the outdoor have been reached. For practical purposes, there's no way to add another category. Because think about this. You have a world championship. Frequently, that's combined with a junior world championship. So you have how many categories? There's a ton of categories already, right? Yeah. In the outdoor, they've been Recurve, men and women. Well, sometimes, like in Turkey, they've got them going on at the same time, you know, in the past, like in 2009 or whatever it was. So think about the logistics here. You add another category, you're talking about another category of men and women, and potentially for some events, you have all the, the juniors and the cadets and the seniors and the masters, and it just becomes a big thing. And uh, the other aspect of this is the critical mass of barebow isn't there. That's what I wonder. I mean, I, I think it'd be cool to see him at an outdoor. Which but... is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? I mean, yeah. there'd be more barebow people if it were offered as a world championship target event. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, there aren't enough to generate the justification for it. Right, and would federations support it? And That's, the other thing is there's almost yeah. no barebow in Asia. Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly think world archery would be up for it if the numbers made sense and if they were going to have support from the federations. But they're not going to put on a world archery championship for a group of 80 people well and that's the problem yeah you know the other problem i think is that um barebow is generally a eurocentric thing you don't have any barebow to speak of uh at least on the world archery level uh from asia for example and universality is pretty important to the goals of of wa 150 something countries right but I'd say Barebow is, is really concentrated in 20 of those or yeah, less. Yeah, we'll, we'll be able to get a good look at the numbers of Barebow shooters at World Field, where it's most popular. Yeah, but look at where they're from, too, which is the other right. factor. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I think, I think you know what? Obviously, 
hey, uh, we work for Easton. We just want people to shoot archery. We don't care what discipline you're shooting because, uh, you know, uh, we're all about growing the sport no matter what discipline you want. But I think there's practical reasons why uh, you don't see Barebow at the uh, at the Outdoor World Archery Championship as an example. Yeah, I, maybe someday. I don't know. I, yeah, I it could just, be. Right but, now, I don't think it would happen. Yeah, I, I yeah. Nothing, and that's and it's know, not because of something. Think I have something against Barebow or whatever. Hey, we're all about it. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand why somebody would think that because guess what? Barebow people buy arrows. Yeah, it's so you know how people like to twist stuff. So. I, I get it. It's just uh, right now, I don't think it would happen. Um, we did cover this quite a bit, but uh, Jason uh, Dupe is asking cuts and how they pertain to field archery, uphill versus downhill. Um, there's no difference between uphill and downhill within reasonable velocities and reasonable skill level. Yeah, if you get out to like 60 meters and you have a giant cut, you might see like a 0.2 difference. Yeah, but not enough to be within the range of what you can measure from an average human. Yeah, it, yeah. Um, so uphill versus downhill, no, you're cutting either way. And it's about the same cut either way. So, uh, thoughts on the return of Simon Fairweather. A lot of folks don't know this. Simon is going to be shooting in Dublin. Now, Simon's a world champion from, I'm going to have to go back to the 1990s. And Simon took a silver medal, I think, at uh, the same world championship that Jay Bars won in Norway. And uh, many of you don't maybe don't know, but Simon uh, is the 2000 Olympic champion. And Simon was a coach in Australia and one of the finest people I know in the sport. And I'm really happy. That's my thought on the return of Simon Fairweather. Really happy to see a guy with that talent and that ability to teach coming back to a high level of sport. So do you know off the top of your head, Just I, I have a, a question just as it pertains to the progression of the sport. Do you know what the double 70 world record was in 2000 when Simon won? Wow. Uh, or even have a... There wasn't one per se because we yeah, shot the feet full, around. Full 1440. It was a full feet around, yeah. Do you know what that individual world record was? It would be somewhere in the high 340s for right. a distance of 70 meters. Now it's like 353 for the yeah. individual yeah. 70 meters? So I'm thinking 346, 347 back in 2000, maybe. I could be wrong. And was undoubtedly held by a Korean named Pak. My odds of being correct with that are fairly high. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I just it's I always you know have that curiosity. Now you've got a guy like O shooting three fifty three, and you know Kim Woo Jin shot three fifty two. Brady's been in the three fifties before. Yeah, you uh, know, and the, and the the mid three fifties were also a record for compound back then. You know, mid to high three fifties. Right. Um, as an aside, you know, I uh, I went out to, you know, we have an archery park out here behind Easton, and the Hoyt employees use it as well. And uh, I went out one day, and there's Jason Fogg, who at the time was working at Hoyt. Um, and Jason, you know, who's known as a bow hunter, he's out there with his hunting bow, shooting ACCs, 70 meters on the 70-meter target, and he shot a three fifty six. <laughs> and I'm looking at that, and I'm going, why aren't you competing? I mean, it was hunting bow, ACCs, two and a half inch fletching, 356 at 70 meters, witnessed. And I'm like, why aren't you competing? I have a feeling there's a lot of guys out there that don't know what their potential could be with target archery if they were to, if they were to try to, 
try to apply themselves to it. You know, there's a lot of guys out there who claim that they would be far and away the world's best shooters. Okay, yeah, know? that's different. The though. guys, this is uh, you know, this is not somebody who ever made claims. He just went out and he did, did it. it. Yeah, you know? I, I like the yeah. The, it is different, but you know the uh, the guy who tells me he can keep him inside of a chewing tobacco can at sixty. I go, oh, I well, know. you know that's really good at at our fifty meters at fifty five yards. So you should come on out and play sometime because you could make a lot of money. Uh, George Clark, do you run V-bars or single offset on your setup? Yes. So I kind of touched on that. I, I can't do V-bars, maybe someday, but I tried, didn't work. Speaking of uh, stabilization, field archery is where you see, see the, it's the land of weird stabilizers. Yep. You see the swinging gate yep, recurve. The, the Swedish swing bars, Yeah. which is, by the way, a very handy way to um, put your bow down on the ground without getting it dirty. And it makes sense for field. And it makes sense for field on a number of bases, particularly for recurve. Let's, and by the way, Simon Fairweather used to shoot a swing bar setup. In fact, I built him one uh, back in the early 90s. But your thoughts on why it makes sense first? Um, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the premise is... It's for side to side torque. Am, am I am I wrong there? Because I mean, if you start, it's well, it doesn't even make sense that way. Um, I thought about it long and hard one day. I thought, yeah, that that makes sense because as you go to aim uphill or downhill, you know the bars are always going to be pointing the same direction. So aiming uphill. Now I have to remember all this. You know why I thought it made sense. Yeah, I can't even remember. It doesn't make sense anymore to me. All right. I guess we could drop that aspect of things. I had thought this through long and hard, and I thought, yeah, it makes sense for a compound. To me, it was lateral torque, you know, between the uphill and downhill shots and and uh, keeping things. I just think it helps level the bow, um, you know, from the standpoint of. I'm completely lost now. I think it just helps level the bow. Switching gears. Well, I'm going to have to come back to this. Yeah, we can. Okay, so switching gears. Um, on to the um, podcast emails, which is podcast at eastontp.com. Exactly. It's not like you to miss a cue, but I see you're thinking still. I, so yeah. Stop thinking. All right, so first off, uh, Sarah Toth, uh, thanks for taking my question on last week's podcast. This is the lady who, shoot, who used to shoot um, uh, Angel Dyneema Sensitive. Uh, she says, I was hoping for a little more specific advice, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, I have known since the late 90s that Dyneema Sensitive was gone, and I'm quite ready to suck it up, buttercup, haha. <laughs> Just need to know which direction to point my trusty rainbow vacuum. <laughs> um, so that dovetails to an email we got from our buddy, John Dixon, Stretchy. Stretch was one of the spotters at the London Olympics, among many other things, and he was a top Scottish shooter. And if you're not from Scotland, you're crap. Something like that. <laughs> Sorry, John. Um, hi, GT and Steve. Proving I have all sorts of crap kicking around in my cupboards. Here's an unopened roll of Angel Dynema Sensitive that your listener is welcome to <laughs> if she pays postage. Nice. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, Sarah and Stretch, I'm going to let you two get together by way of our email. 
And I'm going to give, if it's okay with you, John, confirm that it's okay that I give Sarah your email address and we'll get you two to uh, work out a deal where Sarah can relieve you of your unused role of uh, Dyneema. Otherwise, Sarah, um, specific recommendations for uh, a replacement material. Um, 8190. Maybe the new 8190F, I think it is. Yep. Which is just a smaller strand. Yeah, they're not using the gore, so it's not the the G. Mm-hmm. It's the F now, which is a smaller strand of Dyneema, so it's all Dyneema again. So uh, that's BCY, 8190. Uh, I like that so much. And I'd suggest that that would be a good way to go. My, uh, my coach uh, in Japan built me a couple of strings. And one's 8190, and one's the other one, 80... 8125? 8125G. And I can't tell the difference. And I lost the labels. And I don't know which is which. <laughs> <laughs> They're really good strings. But, uh, yeah. Um, I would say that uh, that's good stuff. Let's see here. There's some more here from Sarah. Oh, yeah. Uh, since you said sh- the Majesty material shooting like a steel wire, that would not be my cup of tea. I'm a small-statured OR-style shooter with child-sized hands. What are some of the softer, less callus-inducing materials available now or maybe a serving material that could mitigate the effects of the wire-like string material? Sarah, you're not talking about a string issue here. You're talking about a tab issue here. I'm going to suggest you go to two layers of cordovan and try to deal with it that way because if you're getting pain in your fingers, uh, string material is not going to help so much as having the right tab. I don't think serving material would do anything. You'd have to go to, you could go to a softer material like 3D, but it's not designed for a center, and it's certainly not designed for finger shooters. Right. You know, you need a Halo or a Angel Majesty. The Angel Majesty is really yeah. good for center serving material. It's the this, the Majesty center serving material is the best. Wears like iron, um, fits the knocks really well. Does not change knock fit over time. Does not allow a tied-on knocking point to slip. Lots of reasons to use that stuff. Yeah, but if that's feeling too hard for you, then, yeah, it's really, it's got to be a tab issue. I can tell Sarah's been listening to the podcast for a long time. She says here, on an unrelated note, Vasily did miss something special in not seeing Montana. That's a, That goes way back to the, like, second podcast. Yeah, so, so I discovered the archery-forum podcast subforum. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it turns out, these guys have just been, you know, George just sits here and drops inside jokes with this Andy guy. And, you know, they just, <laughs> it's one line after another that I apparently miss. Well, sometimes I miss so, them too. Sometimes I pick up on stuff that I didn't intend. But yeah, I'm going to start dropping lines from, you know, modern time movies. That I, I think you, you should. Seen. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see here. Um, stretch, going back to Stretch's questions here. Um, says here, until recently, oh, First off, don't you think Kibo Bay will want to hang in and try to beat or equal Kim Soon Young's medal haul? She still needs a silver individual and gold team. Gosh, I hope so. I hope she tries. Like we said in the previous podcast, you know, Kibo Bay appears to be suffering. Was it the previous one or the one right after? The one after Rio. Yeah. So Kibo Bay um, looks like she's suffering a shoulder injury, based on your observations. Um, again, this is this is almost gossip because we didn't. Yeah, we have no idea. We don't have a medical report on Kibo Bay. <laughs> Um, but we can say that, you know, it looked like she was getting a lot of work done on her shoulder and, you know, it looked like she was in some pain. Yeah. I'm not wrong about that. Yeah. So 
be that as it may, whatever the cause of that was, yeah, I, I we sure hope Kibo Bay sticks with it. There's no question about it. We both personally and professionally think she's great for the sport, and uh, so obviously we hope that she that she goes after Kim Soon Young's medal haul. But boy, that's going to be a tough road to hoe. Yeah, uh, team gold. Yeah, well, number Not one, an easy making thing to do. making the teams and be the hardest part about equaling the medal haul. Yeah, she yeah. makes a team. She's probably going to win a team gold. Uh, you know, individual Another silver. Team gold. Yeah, yeah. Individual silver would be hard. Always is. So until recently, Stretch says he was shooting contours uh, without dampers on a 72-inch Prodigy RX with wood core quattros and 44 pounds at even tiller. They were quiet and sweet, but there was an underlying high-frequency vibration. I liked the feel, but it triggered off an old elbow problem from Stretch's car accident from about a decade ago. Uh, currently, I have A-bombs all around, which is a doinker uh, A-bomb, but the feeling is just like any other stiff rod with stabilizers, a little soggy. Any questions on how I might be able to reduce the buzz without the dampers? More weight? Um, well, one thing you could do, Stretch, is you could put the, uh, you know, you could maybe take the side dampers off, put one on the long rod, and put it between weights. Yeah, I would have it just before the last weight. Yep. So. That would be something to try. So... Um, He's also got a knock question. He's been using Biter 4.5 millimeter overknocks since 1997, just like every Korean girl out there. I also forayed into Biter in and outs, pin outs and pin knocks, and GT may remember supplying me with some original Easton pins as well. I always had problems with Biter in outs and pin outs cracking at the collar. Yeah, you and a lot of other folks, um, like Butch Johnson. Butch had some crack at the collar, and he's getting highs and lows from that. Now I'm getting that on all the Biter knocks. They always crack at 12 or 6 o'clock on the vertical plane. I'm very happy with the new Easton pin knock, but I suspect the biter cracking is a symptom. Any ideas? Gosh, I actually don't think so. I've been hearing this from a lot of folks that, that they're seeing cracking on the biter knocks. Um, I can't explain why. I mean, it might just be an issue of you know longevity. You might have to replace them a little bit more often. I, I don't know. The Koreans change them out pretty frequently. Yeah, I'm a fan of changing knocks frequently. Yeah, and just in general, anybody's knock. Yeah. So, you know, um, he's saying the tune looks okay, groups well at 70 meters. He's wondering if the spine was weak. Could that cause some weirdness? But the spine looks okay. Yeah, I would, I would agree the spine looks okay based on the specs you gave. It seems to me that, uh, that you're really looking at a situation where you just are going to need to keep an eye on that. Now, if you're shimming those things and you're shimming them with floss like a lot of people do, you are going to put a hot spot on that knock, and it is going to be a, a – um, a potential crack initiation spot. And when you say shimming, you mean building up the center serving size? Uh, no, fit? sorry, no? to make it fit the arrow. A lot of folks throw a piece of dental floss over the back of the arrow shaft oh, okay. and then push the knock over that. You'll notice a lot of the Koreans are doing that. Oh, so that helps it uh, That helps okay. it fit because yep. it's not really an exact fit on that knock to that arrow. It's actually a compromised fit. Mm. Um, you know, it just happens to fit, right? It wasn't designed that way. So yeah, it's um, going to create a it's going to create a hot spot like on that a, knock. Yeah, I don't know. That's what stretch is doing. It's essentially stretching the knock for stretch. It is indeed. Yeah, that was funny. By the way, was... you two are about the same height. <laughs> um, hence the name, I guess. He'd also comment that when we talked about fletching of Olympic shooters, he's not sure it was fair to clump all mylar veins together. Spider veins are easily damaged, but spider and Ellie veins are pretty robust, more so than the AAE wave. XS veins are pretty tough too, but are brittle in low temps. Hasn't tried gas pros. I'd recommend Spider and XS to anyone who wants good results at long range but finds spin wings a bit high maintenance. 
Yeah, I've got a lot of folks out there telling me um, that the XS wings, which, by the way, I shoot, are more durable than spin wings, and for sure that's true. Yeah, that's what I've heard, and I have no firsthand knowledge. Yeah, uh, spider veins, I've still got a couple packs of spider veins that Brady gave me. I haven't had time to go fletch them yet, so I don't know. But yeah, you're right, John. Uh, I imagine between the spider and the XS, they're very similar. I, I imagine they're very similar. <laughs> and that's all we're going to say about that. They started in the same garage, right? Yeah. But, you know, Stretch is right. Um, that, yeah, they're not all the same. I'm talking performance. I was really talking about performance. Right. Not necessarily durability. Although, John, your, your point's well made. Thank you for that. Um, got a question here from, from Mike. Um, and it says, Hi, I've got a question about ACC arrows. I shoot ACC 3-04680s. Managed to break two of them, so bought a new set, as I've had them for 18 months. They were fleshed and set up the same. On shooting the new ones, they fly straighter and appear to be stiffer. Is there any evidence of arrows changing either their stiffness or some of their characteristic over time use? And if so, is there any usage or time frame recommendations? Many thanks, Mike Williamson. Well, Mike, um, a couple things to keep in mind. Check the weight. See if the arrows weigh the same. Are you shooting into Edgerton targets? Are you shooting into straw targets? If you're shooting a lot into straw targets, you're wearing carbon off the front of those arrows. It's not going to actually affect the spine of the arrow, but it could affect the weight of the arrow, and it could affect how it shoots. The other thing is, did you change your knocks? Did you change your knocks? Because if you've got old knocks mixed with new knocks, yeah, you could see some differences. Mm-hmm. So look at those two things. Uh, let's see. And pins. Yeah. Steven, uh, Steven Smelt writes, thank you very much for everything you do for archery. I really love the podcast. Thank you, Steven. I'm a left-handed shooter that is right-handed dominant. I've had a lot of success shooting this way, like 300 rounds, state championships in 3D open class, etc. Here's the, here's the important part of Steven's question. Uh, my son is five years old and is also left-handed and has been shooting for about six months, but I just discovered he is right-eye dominant. Should I switch him to shooting right-handed or leave him be, leave him left-handed, because that's his most natural way, or does it really matter? So your son's five years old, left-handed he's been shooting for six months with his left eye but now you find out he's right eye dominant at that age i'd probably just have him shoot right eye or right hand and i will say take him to an optometrist or an ophthalmologist and have him checked out make sure that that a he really is right eye dominant and b that his vision doesn't have a tendency to possibly change over mm-hmm. time because it may right at the yeah, age if of it's five, so close it could yeah, could go one way or another. That's all I'm getting at. So um, figure out whether that's a long-term thing. In the meantime, my personal perspective is leave it alone. Yeah, it. I would say right now while he's in the development stage, you can get him accustomed to shooting right hand if that's what you Kids are flexible at that age, yeah. and you could switch him either way. But I'd want to make sure he stays right-eye dominant I, before making yeah. that decision. I, I go with the – is he – so right eye dominant that he needs to shoot right handed, or is he so left handed that he should just deal with the eye dominance issue? Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. I mean, that's. I play billiards left handed. Don't know why, other than my aunt and uncle had a, a billiards table when I was very little, and I think I just started by picking up the stick, uh, you know, left handed. Jay Bars, who's right handed, bats right, golf's right, which makes it easier for him to find uh, old golf clubs. I'm sure. 
But mm-hmm. uh, again, it's just same same deal. By the way, similar situation, right? He's he's a natural, talented athlete. He can be ambidextrous if he needs to be. Shoots left tied, left handed, but mm-hmm. uh, bats and golf's right. Just you know, just yeah. an easier thing when you're a kid and you're handed a bat. You know, get up there and bat right. I guess. Yeah, it's what everyone else does. You yeah. Know? So. Uh, I don't know if that's terribly helpful, but I, you know, again, you got contrary advice. You got Steve saying, go ahead, change them up. And you got me saying, check first and then maybe change them <laughs> I up. I like your idea. Check the eyes first because that could be something that goes one way or another depending on how Yeah, it's kind of now. a, yeah, just make sure. Uh, let's see here. Um, we've got Brad and. Okay, so this one, <laughs> oh, here comes a controversial question. Brad, thanks for doing the podcast. I love the great information you're putting out. I read an article today written by a formerly very successful recurve archer. He claimed that an all-aluminum arrow's spine will break down over time, and the top shooters quickly switch out their aluminum shafts. Is there any truth to this? Thanks again, Brad. Well, I'll, you know, I'll just I'll say it. It's Rick McKinney's article. Rick worked, maybe still does, for Carbon Tech, you know, and ran that company for a while and maybe still does mm-hmm. and was selling Carbon Arrows. So imagine Rick writing an article about aluminum arrows when he's selling Carbon Arrows. But, but here's the reality. Within their usage envelope, no, aluminum arrows do not break down over time. It wouldn't that have to do with like the half-life of aluminum? And well, stuff like that? There's, no, there's no such thing and that's the problem. See, what Rick... Uh, ignored is that uh, oh, because it's not an the, the spine of an aluminum arrow is determined by its geometry. Okay. How round is it? Mm-hmm. Right. What's the diameter? What's the wall thickness? That's it. Right. Because all aluminum has about the same stiffness. 7075 is a little less stiff, by the way, uh, than, than um, 6061. Oh, okay. And 7178 is less stiff than 7075. There's, I think there's some bow people who. I know, I know, I know. I think seventy seventy five is no. It has a higher yield strength, right? Yeah, it's a stronger material, right? But But it does. It's not stiffer. It's all about the same stiffness, Mm -hmm. you know, for all intent and purpose. You'd have to get into really fine. And by the way, that's why some X seven size points don't fit in some seventy seventy five shafts, because the the higher end aluminum from the strength standpoint is actually slightly less stiff. So to get the same spine, the wall thickness has to be adjusted, which means the ID of the arrow is not the same, which is why Easton for many years made different size points for X7s than double X75s for certain target sizes. So this gets into some esoterica, but bottom line is Rick's article is wrong. Arrows do not act like a paper clip that's bent back and forth, which is what he implies. And if you have a change in how an arrow behaves, it's due to the knock, it's due to the knock alignment, it's due to the straightness, or it's due to the roundness being changed, not the material somehow magically losing its Young's modulus of elasticity, which is a fundamental physical aspect of the material. Okay, we're not transmuting aluminum into gold here. So Rick's article's wrong, and there you have it. And I'll say that too. I have said that to his face. So there you go. Um, let's see. We oh, I'm have... laughing here. Can you say the, the, what were those words you used again? LOL? No, the oh. uh, <laughs> fundamental. 
Oh, never mind. Something, something. That's just me getting on my high horse. This might Don't be the about. first time I listen to a podcast just so I can hear that line again. Okay. That's right. We never listen to our own podcast, but we probably should so we can figure out what not to do. Um, I'm looking at uh, one more question here before we go. I think... Uh, oh, it's a question for you. Sebastian... Roberg, I think, was the last person I saw shooting swing bars. I'm still on that. Yeah, Sebastian Roberg shoots swing bars, but I'm pretty sure that Christine Bjerndahl will show up at the uh, at the thing with swing bars as well. She didn't have swing bars at the Olympics, not for target, for field. Yep. So she's you know she's Jorn Bjerndahl's daughter. Mm-hmm. Jorn Bjerndahl's basically. Um, He's you know, an engineer, right? Yeah, he's an engineer. But, you know, if you think of uh, the, the Swedish gods like Tor, I think there's a Yorn in there, too. You know what I'm saying? No, he's awesome. He's an awesome guy, one of my favorite people in the sport. And uh, I, hope he's, I hope he's there, maybe coaching or something, you know? Yeah. I hope you get to meet him. Um, this is another question from Sarah. And uh, she's asking specifically for you here, Steve. Dear Steve, you've mentioned a few times on the podcast that you've been self-coached. I'm trying to do the same thing as a recurve shooter, but how do you know if you're doing it right when there's no one knowledgeable around to watch you shoot and give feedback, at least as a beginner? I had a good coach 20 years ago when I was shooting as a righty. I found out I was left-eyed dominant. I'm trying to learn to shoot as a lefty. Any tips for the self-coached person on how to learn other than stop doing a certain thing if it hurts? Thanks, Sarah. Well, the target will tell you if you're doing it right or not. So that's, that should cover that answer. Um, and then we, we dive right back into, you know, stuff we've said in the past. There's really no right or wrong way for something to be done. You look at the way Ojin Hook shoots. You look at the way Brady shoots. Uh, you look at the way, you know, uh, Kubo Chan, Kuban Chan or Kim Woo Jin shoots. It's all different, you know, especially a guy like, oh, very different compared to the rest. And, you know, provided it's, working for you and showing up on the target you know that's all you really need to care about and I think that's just a matter of uh, you know some experimentation you'll eventually find something that you feel like this is the right path to follow now I just gotta ingrain that work on muscle memory and you know this is what provides the best results Um, you know shooting recurve I can't speak so much on that because it's it's more technique based than what I do. Whereas what I do is a, more of a game of don't mess up. You know, you you have to be more sound, whereas I have to be more consistent. Um, so I can't I can't uh, speak to that, but I have found something that puts arrows in the ten ring for me, and I've become good at just doing that over and over again. That's that's compound archery, you know. So for recurve, yeah, you, you, it'd probably be a lot harder to be self-coached because you've got to find that technique that works with your shot. So, so part of this is also finding answers to how to get past the self-coaching dilemma that Sarah finds herself in. And Sarah, have you thought about finding yourself a coach that's not near you but that will coach you through video? Yeah, I mean, that's there's a lot of people who do that. Right, you can set up a, a phone and take video of yourself, email that to a coach mm-hmm. or to someone that you, you know, can get advice from, not necessarily a, a capital C-O-A-C-H, right? It can be somebody that knows what they're doing, another archer. Yeah. And they can offer you advice on that kind of thing. You can look at that yourself and compare it to shooters like, say, Kibo Bay, a good one to emulate, by the way. 
and you could look at what you're doing versus what they're doing and, and maybe make a determination for yourself using video. Powerful tool. Yep. The other thing is set up a mirror and, and look at what you're doing. Yeah, right? and it could be, you know, uh, a fellow archer provides you, and they're not a coach, like you said, but they provide you with, you know, one tip here or there. You know, or, and, and one tip here or there could be um, this shot you did this with your elbow and the next shot you did something else. Yeah. It's the spotting something else and correcting that. Yeah. Because again, what is archery? Archery is consistency. Mm-hmm. Comes down to doing the same thing over and over again with the end result being a group in the target. So, Sarah, I hope that helps a little bit. Um, I'd look into maybe uh, looking at video of yourself and analyzing it as objectively as you can, comparing that to video of somebody like a Kibo Bay um, and figuring out because that's easy to find on YouTube. That's why I mentioned Kibo Bay. Yeah. And figuring out what you might be doing different than someone like her. Yeah. So I, I try to do this um, like with my golf game, and I'm not going to go and get lessons or pay anyone or anything like that. It's just not in my nature. But uh, Is that cheapness or stubbornness? It's more stubbornness. Okay. You know? Eventually, yeah, I might I, I might do something like that. But for now, I feel like – I have people around me who can give me a little tip and I feel like I have the ability to work it out on my own, you know? So, um, it's a matter of there, there's, you're not going to find, you know, the resources for archery that you would for say golf. I mean, you go on YouTube and there's thousands and thousands of swing tip videos for golf and there's probably tens and maybe, maybe a dozen of, you know, archery, good archery tips um so it's something like breaking down fundamentals like you know i'm going to shoot with a deeper hook on my on my release hand for you know 36 arrows and see how that and pattern that and see what it does with impacts or group size or left and right or up and down see how it affects all that stuff and then and then try it with the you know less of a hook on there and and it's a it's a long slow road but you'll eventually find that stuff with those fundamental changes that leads to a good combination that works best for you. Our Facebook page is Easton Target Archery on Facebook. Yeah, it is now. You have Instagram? I do. Yeah, I don't I don't post much, but it's at uh, Steve Anderson 88 and your Twitter? Same. Steve Anderson 88. Yep. And um, what other social media stuff do we have? Uh, I am on Facebook personally as Steve Anderson Archery, which I think is facebook.com slash bigcatarchery. And I don't do any of that stuff, so. <laughs> you big time the Facebook. Yeah. Well, no, I don't do Facebook. So those are our um, social media pages for Steve Anderson. Um, you can reach me on the Easton Target Archery Facebook page because I do look at that once in a while. Also, um, uh, there's a Twitter feed. You're at- a big Twitterer. Not so big. G Machov at Twitter. Or You're a lot more G-Tech active in, in Twitter than I am. Which is okay. Fair enough. And uh, I've been saying controversial things on Twitter lately. Have you seen that? I, I haven't because I'm not active on Twitter. I, I'm really angry at what the IPC <laughs> did to the Russian team on uh, in reference to the Paralympics. Oh, yeah. You know. Not cool. There's not one Russian Paralympian in archery that has been busted for... For, uh, for, doping. for doping and t- 
to ban the entire Russian delegation. <laughs> when they let like the majority of Russians compete in the Olympics. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. but no. No bueno. I'm not happy about it. And um, I don't think those athletes deserve that kind of treatment. I really don't. But that's my political statement for the day. You know, it's it's interesting, and that's the word I'm going to use, interesting, to see the inconsistencies in the way the Olympics and Paralympics are handled by but, federations. But you know that the IPC runs the Paralympics and the IOC yep. runs the Olympic Games. Yep. And you also maybe know that World Archery runs the archery event at the Paralympics. World Archery, not the IPC, is responsible for the archery part of the Paralympics. And World Archery didn't have any say. They are just as unhappy that the Russian delegation right. was banned. Yeah, so that's that's the start of what I think is interesting. When the IOC... World Archery said it was unfair. The IOC and the IPC are separate, yet the events are held at the same place. The people who run the events are... Most of the same volunteers. Yes, like uh, Louise, who did an incredible amount of work for archery in Brazil. He's doing... Or for, for archery at the uh, Olympic Games. He's doing archery at the Paralympic Games as well. So, you know, he was tasked to do that job, and I'm sure it's a paid position for him. Um, Not a lot, though. Yeah, but he's doing he's doing both. Yeah. You know, and then... But and by the who's way, he answering to? Is it different people? It must be different people. Well, probably, and it's a ton of work. Now, I think, you know, WA, World Archery, has more involvement in running the Paralympic event strictly because WA is also the governing body for Paralympic archery. It's been handed down to them by IPC. They didn't want to do it or whatever. So so I think it's the same WA core staff and the same people. You know, Tom Dillon's down there, for yeah. example. And Mario Scarzella is down there, the, the European uh, Federation president and uh, one of the first five presidents of WA. And I'm sure all the WA... Um, powerhouse people are, are they're there. all there yeah. yeah they they went back for a week and turned yeah. around and came home yeah but. so i mean and it's a lot of work putting on that para event because some of those folks have special needs and they require you know transport consideration yep. and you know i mean there's a lot to it so yeah and you think you know you you get everyone i mean the first few days of of the archery event you know you're doing a lot of logistical legwork trying to help people get everything they need and get to and from and and uh, be satisfied with that and and fall into a routine. Now you've got to turn around and do it again, you know, for something that's probably a little bit logistically harder because, like you said, the transportation adds complications and, and things of that nature. But it's uh, I don't know, it, it's just interesting to me to see the, see the parallels there. I mean, I could go into it and put down some controversy. You know, we were, we were asked by uh, one particular group, to provide support for both the Olympic and Paralympic teams. And I, I won't say what nation this was, but uh, we did. We provided some support for them and helped them with uh, some product that you know, they got at a discounted price. And, um, but they, they really, without us ever saying anything, you know, they, they almost tried to guilt us into helping – the Paralympic team. I, I was like, that's really not a problem. I have no issues. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to not because it's Paralympic and Olympic. And, and then I learned themselves, they aren't providing the same level of support for their Paralympic team as they did their Olympic team. That country. So, yeah. So I'm going, you know, you tried to guilt me on this. 
but now where are you at? You know? Yeah, that, that inequality is, uh, it's the nature of the thing because of a couple things. I mean, you know, there's no TV contract for the Paralympics like there is yeah, for the Olympics. There, there's no arguing that. You got to follow the money. Yeah, the marketing isn't the same. Well, you got to follow the money. Right. Okay, you've got NBC paying billions of dollars to carry the Olympic Games. They're not going to pay that to carry the Paralympic Games for whatever reasons they have. And um, that's that means less money for those for those individual federations that get paid partly by the IOC based on that NBC money. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and, and you know, the, the revenue flow, it's, it's a little like the argument between compounds and recurves at the, let's just pick the USA archery level, right? right? All the Olympic money that comes into the U.S. Archery Association comes from the performance of recurve archers. Not all of it. All the <laughs> Olympic money. Okay, Olympic money. That yes. comes in. See, I pick my words carefully. Yeah. Not all the money, all the Olympic money, which is the lion's share of the money. Yeah, uh, yeah, the bulk of the budget, I'm sure. And, you know, we're not going to butt heads over this because I'm not going to say anything unpleasant like you're not carrying your weight as a compound shooter that's not true mm-hmm. but you know you got to follow the money yeah and the paralympic shooters don't bring a revenue stream into most of these federations mm-hmm. so it comes down to that so you know it's tough it's always going to be tough um back on a brighter note matt stutzman he's down there yep i expect good things out of him yeah i think eric bennett will win yep possibly yep yeah, some good shooters. There's yeah, and I mean realistically, I probably haven't done my due diligence to know who's down there and what they're doing. You know, I think uh, very good shooter from GBR who set some records in the last couple. You know, John Stubbs. Maybe John Stubbs. Yep. Yeah, that's the name. I, I thought that was the name, but I didn't want to throw it out there in case. You know, that I'm pretty sure name. he beat me once at an Arizona Cup. I'm thinking that might have been might have been him that did that. So he's a solid shooter. Yeah, there's. Uh, I, I think you'll see some good stuff and you know for these guys to go out and shoot uh you know well over 700s with compounds and eric with a recurve has the world record in the the category he shoots in and he's often competitive in the u.s and the you know in, i will in say the open part, category part of the problem with uh televising and and general public understanding what's happening at the paralympics at least in archery is there is a plethora yeah, of categories. categories. It's it's a yeah. lot of categories, and it's a good cautionary tale for those who, you know, taking it back to the question of well, barebow, you know, in target archery, that's another reason why maybe there's some resistance to adding another category. Yeah. The more categories you have, the more confusion you have, the harder it is on a number of levels to televise the sport. The harder it yeah. is to publicize the sport. That's another reason. I mean, yeah, it goes. Not that we're at this level, but you look at uh, if you want to see some confusion, just go to Louisville for five spot nationals and and go to the awards ceremony. You'll how be there for those, three hours. How many of those bowls are they handing out? I think it's in upwards of ninety. Ninety of those things in uh, some yeah. categories that only have what one or two participants. Yep. So you are Jesse Broadwater or whoever, and you won in a field of four hundred people. You got the same silver bowl as a guy with one who just showed up. Yeah, that doesn't seem quite right, does it? It's yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know if we did. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to go down this road of Paralympic it's, stuff. But. Yeah, but yeah, and it has nothing to do with the Paralympic discussion. Actually, what no, we just brought up. No, it it does, but it doesn't. But, but but lots of categories does not lend itself well to making a sport more televisable. No, and the other side of it, at is, least our sport anyway. There's so much controversy in who's going to be allowed to compete and under what category. And now you're back on the paras. Yeah, 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 yeah. and you know half. I yeah, think, look at Danny think, Brown, uh, right? Danny Brown's been DQ'd from the Paras, yeah. something like that, because they re they re they what do they they redefined her condition. They can't like visually tell that she's actually in a lot of pain or something like that. So, so she's no longer eligible for the Paralympic Games. Yeah, is uh, is you know that's a life changing thing for her. I think for, for them to have done that. I think the U.S. was unsure if they would have like six or eleven people competing. So there was because of how people get. Yes, and it was changing clear up until about a month before the event. So you're uncertain as an athlete. You've been preparing for this thing, and now maybe some medical board goes and says, well, you've got 33% disability in that muscle, and therefore you can't compete. Yeah, it's pretty – it's pretty it's not cut and dry, and that's not good for sports. It makes it hard. Yeah. It does. If there's a lot of – I mean, we having just watched the Olympics, we talk about how sports that are judged are kind of – you know, iffy. Yeah, I was going to head there too. I, you know, this this adds a layer of that aspect. Yeah, to it. I mean, this is judged before they ever get to go shoot. Well, so. nobody's going to argue about Stutzman. No, he is certainly without arms. So, and you know, I mean, that's uh, I'll, he'd be he'd be the first one to joke about that. <laughs> yeah, he would. <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, there's no argument there, right? There's no, there's no. It's cut and dried right there. Boom. You yeah. know, man's got no arms and he's shooting archery. Yeah. Leave him alone. He told people, you know, he was juggling chainsaws or something. <laughs> Poorly. He's always got... He always has a line he's about... He's always got something. Yeah. yeah he's, he always elevates the conversation, it seems, to a degree. Yes. You ever seen him dial a phone? Seen him do a lot of stuff. Just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I think we are uh, just about where we need to be to wrap this up. You're headed to Ireland. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have another podcast between now and then. There's really nothing to cover. But well, what we will do we is... talk Paralympics. We might. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably have one more shorter discussion with further questions and the Paralympic Games. Also, um, next time we open up the questions, we're going to launch the questions on both the regular Easton Facebook and the Target Easton Facebook. The regular Easton Facebook is more of a hunting-oriented thing. That doesn't mean we're going, we're going hunting with this podcast, but we're just going to open it up to a wider group of people who don't know the Target one exists. Right. This is about 10 to 1 of uh, reach yeah. with that other one. Something like that. And, of course, if you have further questions, send them to us directly here at... Podcast at EastonTP.com. Our target Facebook page is... Easton Target Archery. Thank you. And our regular Facebook is... Easton Archery. Easton Archery. Yep. Which is easy enough. It's all-encompassing. Easton Target Archery, of course, is where you want to go if you want to send questions directly to us. So we're happy to get those from you. But again, you know, you want to, you want to get directly in touch with us. Um, you know, Stretch, let us know if you're, if you're good with us sending your email address to uh, Sarah, I think it was, and we'll get you guys together on the uh, whole Dyneema-sensitive thing. That's great when we can get listeners together to uh, help yeah, each other out. That. Isn't that cool? It's probably... Our greatest contribution to the world. At In least a this, long time. This week. Yes. <laughs> All right. So for myself, George Tekmachev and Steve the Big Cat Anderson. End of show. End of show.